This morning we continue our fall sermon series entitled Thrive in the Gospel of Matthew. And this morning we pick up the text in Matthew 23, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to listen for God's word for you. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. Therefore, do whatever they teach you and follow it. But do not do as they do, for they do not practice what they teach. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on the shoulders of others, but they themselves are unwilling to lift a finger to move them. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. They love to have the place of honor at banquets and the best seat in the synagogues and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have people call them rabbi. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all students. And call no one your father on earth, for you have one father, the one in heaven. Nor are you to be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Messiah. The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled, and all who humble themselves will be exalted. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Almighty and gracious God, as we come before you this morning, we do so to receive your word, to listen for your voice. So quiet within us any voice but your own, that we might receive what you have for us this day, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You know, this week in Los Angeles, we've celebrated a championship. The Los Angeles Dodgers have won the World Series, first time in 32 years since 1988. And they've added to the city's other crowning sports achievement this year, the Lakers NBA championship. It's a good year for L.A., at least with respect to sports achievements. You know, we endlessly pursue the competition to determine who finally will be crowned the greatest. It was February 1964 before his title bout with Sonny Liston that Muhammad Ali famously made his I am the greatest speech before reporters. I am the greatest. He'll fall in eight to prove I'm great, and if he keeps talking jive, I'll cut it to five. Now that's confidence. Ali won that fight in seven rounds. Every athlete knows that you have to step on the field or in the ring or in the batter's box with a sense of confidence. We're fascinated with who's on top and who's the greatest, and we're never far really from taking our own pulse, wondering how we compare with others and who's the most attractive or who's the most likely to succeed or who has the most beautiful home or the most remarkable kids or takes the best vacations, has the best-looking Christmas card pictures. We're constantly measuring our own greatness, but rarely do we measure up. Who's the greatest? So here in our text, Jesus takes up a familiar issue and exposes our pretensions 
even in our spiritual lives, we spend way too much time and energy pretending to be better than we are instead of actually finding the energy to care more about others than we do ourselves. I mean, what what does it take to look back over a lifetime and say, I feel good about what I accomplished. I did not live my life in vain. How can we ensure that we're living in such a way that we'll be able to reach a conclusion like that one day? Many years ago, the psychologist Abraham Maslow, who completed his graduate work at the University of Wisconsin, studied successful, well-adjusted people. And he called them self-actualized people. And his study led to the development of what's commonly known as Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You think of a pyramid. The theory posits that at the lowest level, human beings need to meet the basic physiological needs like food and water and sleep. At the next level is the need for safety and security. Things like a family, health, employment. And then the third level is the need for friendship and intimacy and relational needs. And the fourth is our need for self-esteem and confidence, achievement, social recognition and respect. And then finally at the top of the pyramid is self-actualization, personal fulfillment, the development of morality, problem-solving skills, spontaneity and acceptance of things beyond your control. I think when the psalmist claims in Psalm 23, my cup overflows, it's an acknowledgement that life is filled full. Now, according to Maslow's theory, when a human being ascends the levels of that hierarchy, having fulfilled the needs in the hierarchy, they may eventually achieve some personal fulfillment. But late in life, Maslow came to conclude that self-actualization was not an automatic outcome of satisfying the other human needs. In other words, people can get stuck along the way. Now, most of us don't have to worry about where our next meal is going to come from or where we're going to sleep tonight. So many of us have already moved on to the mid-range level of needs in the hierarchy. We're interested in things like material success and the approval of people we respect. But this text in Matthew says Jesus saw people in his day getting stuck at the mid-range level. People just like you and me. People looking for a good life but never really moving on to find it. Two centuries ago, some of them played the same games I'm tempted to play. They didn't drive Teslas or BMWs or wear Armani suits, but they had their own ways of asserting themselves. The way they dressed was designed to distinguish themselves and their success. They made these broad phylacteries and enlarged the borders of their garments. They loved to be seen in the best seats at important occasions, at kind of the equivalent of Disney Hall or the Staples Center in Jerusalem. They were good people for the most part, not villains. 
Jesus points out no great crime committed here. They were just people playing the same game lots of us play, even with their religion. We want other people to respect us and to think well of us, but the game comes with certain risks. A few years ago in the New York Times, Ruth Whitman's article appeared in the Sunday Review. She's the author of a book entitled America the Anxious, How Our Pursuit of Happiness is Creating a Nation of Nervous Wrecks. In the article, she tells the story of arriving in America from Britain, friendless and lonely. So she researched apps for her phone that she could use to cheer her up. She knew no one. She felt alone in this country. And the app she eventually chose messaged her every hour or so with a positive affirmation that she was supposed to repeat to herself over and over. I'm beautiful or I'm enough. She writes, quote, the problem was every time the phone buzzed with an incoming message, I would get this Pavlovian jolt of excitement thinking that an actual person was trying to contact me. I am enough. I would snarl bitterly upon realizing the truth, unable to shake the feeling that without friends or community, I really wasn't enough. Happiness comes from within, said the inspirational photo card in her Facebook news feed a few days later. Now, having spent the last few years researching and writing a book about happiness and anxiety in America, she noticed that her particular strain of happiness advice, this, this strain of happiness advice that we get pummeled with all the time, the kind that pitches the search for contentment as an internal, personal quest, divorced from other people. It's become increasingly common. Variations include things like this. Happiness is determined not by what's happening around you, but what's happening inside of you. Or happiness should not depend on other people. And the perky and socially shareable happiness is an inside job. One email she received from a self-help mailing list even doubled down on the idea with a turbocharged kind of word mashup within words. So she writes, in an individualistic culture powered by self-actualization, the idea that happiness should be engineered from the inside out rather than the outside in is slowly taking on the status of a default truism. This is happiness framed as a journey of self-discovery rather than the natural byproduct of engaging with the world. A happiness that stresses emotional independence rather than interdependence. One based on the idea that meaningful contentment can be found only by a fuller exploration of the self. A deep dive into our innermost souls and the intricacies and tripwires of our own personalities. Step one, find yourself. Step two, be yourself. 
But this isolationist philosophy is showing up not just in the way that many Americans talk about happiness, but in how they spend their time. People who study these things have observed in, a, in recent times, especially a marked increase in solitary happiness pursuit activities carried out either completely alone or in a group without interaction. And the explicit aim is of keeping each person locked in their own private emotional experience. And all of this was studied before the pandemic that we're in. Even spiritual and religious practice is slowly shifting from kind of a community-based endeavor to a private one with silent meditation retreats, mindfulness apps, yoga classes, replacing church socials and collective worship. The self-help industry with its guiding principle that the search for happiness should be an individual self-focused enterprise is booming. America's, Americans spend more than $1 billion a year on self-help books, to guide them on their inner journeys. Meanwhile, self-care has become the new going out. And for some, even worship becomes kind of a private affair without interaction. Especially now that we're primarily worshiping from home, churches begin to feel a little bit more like exercise classes with everyone in their own private world, the equivalent of having headphones on while taking a spinning class with the pastor as the motivational instructor, attempting to help you become your best self. And we become increasingly isolated, even in groups of people. Instead of reaching out to others, we compare ourselves to others and we measure ourselves by others. Where is God in all of that? Is that really what Jesus is calling us to be about? Now, while placing more and more emphasis on seeking happiness within, Americans in general are spending less and less time actually connecting with other people. In other words, we're self-absorbed. But apparently that's nothing particularly new. Only the expressions of it is new. Jesus called it out when he saw it among the religious officials of his day. Back a few chapters ago in Matthew 18, the disciples came to Jesus and they asked him, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child and he put him before them as a positive example. And he said, unless you change and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever becomes humble like this child is the greatest. Now, he illustrates a similar point, except with a negative example of the religious officials before them. These ones look the part but miss the point. Externally, they have the packaging but none of the substance. Now, I, I got to be cautious here because when it comes to religious officials, I fit that category. 
Hypocrites come in all shapes and sizes. A title doesn't always mean substance. You can have eminence without competence. We often engage in our own form of hypocrisy, pretending to care about others when we really are only self-serving. We seek to improve the quality of our own life, not the quality of their lives. And often I think I would rather be ruined by praise than saved by criticism. When Jesus talks about the scribes and Pharisees, he's talking about good people who get stuck and never really move beyond their need for approval and recognition. Who's the greatest? The greatest among you will be your servant. All who exalt themselves will be humbled. All who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, this week we have an election to determine who will be the next president of the United States. I recently had the occasion to attend a webinar hosted by the Trinity Forum entitled Preserving Democracy Amidst Deep Division with Dr. Robert George and Dr. Cornell West. You can probably find it on YouTube and it would be worth the effort. In the setup for this discussion, Cherie Harder, the host for the discussion, described our current context, and I think she described it well. She said, the question that we're wrestling with in this webinar is this. How do we preserve liberal democracy in the midst of deep division? Even as we're rapidly becoming a more religiously, ethnically, racially, sociologically, and certainly politically diverse nation, we're also becoming an angrier, more alienated, and polarized one. As our differences have waxed, it seems our ability to engage them constructively have waned. Recent polls have shown that even as we, the people, often expressed ideologically incoherent points of view, we're united to our political tribe, not based on agreement on policy or principle or even shared affection, but rather an increased fear and loathing of those on the other side. The very nature of liberal democracy and certainly our republic requires a willingness to respect, work with, live with, and love those with whom we disagree. And at a time when our political differences seem so deep and the stakes are so high, How do we live out our deepest convictions and live together as friends, neighbors, and fellow citizens? And how do we find the unum amidst the pluribus and preserve democracy amidst deep difference? Well, with that set up, Robert George opined, that with so much attention in our culture these days on identity, 
identity politics that leads to cancel culture and support for our tribe, no matter the ends or the means, that our tribe must always be right. By contrast to identity, the need for integrity is essential and paramount, he said. The need to respect and affirm the dignity of every human being is essential and paramount. Asked to reflect on how these two speakers, with such opposing views on so many of the social issues of the day, how they have formed and maintained such a close friendship. Dr. George shared that Cornell West's integrity has provided the basis for a trust in their relationship, which has allowed him to listen to and learn from and challenge and explore and remain friends throughout their exchanges. They love one another as brothers. This Roman Catholic and this self-described funky Baptist have found a way, despite their differences, to sustain a friendship that bridges every divide. And at the heart of their friendship is character. Character that expresses itself in humility and integrity. Christian virtues. We need people to lift up these virtues in our churches and schools in our government, in our businesses. But more than that, we need people to embody them, to be examples of those virtues, to be exemplars of how to live with integrity and humility with others, not against them, respecting the dignity of every human being. Jesus doesn't ask me to solve all the world's problems, but he does ask me to get on my feet and do something for others. Maybe to stand beside a single parent struggling to survive or take a stand with those who are seeking to help those on the margins, the poor, the homeless. Maybe it's just as simple as making myself available to someone, a friend or a coworker who's lonely and confused and struggling. Maybe it involves just walking across the street to greet someone, someone who may need some encouragement or kindness. You see, we don't come here to church to feel good about ourselves. This is the place where we come together with the Lord and we feel the thrill of the Spirit energizing us for action in someone else's life. It's only then that our cups begin to overflow. It's only then that we know fulfillment. These simple virtues that our Lord calls us to are actually the antidote for a divided nation. We already have the vaccine for this pandemic, this pandemic of our self-absorption. 
So don't get stuck in the middle level of the hierarchy looking for social recognition. Move on to actual care and concern for others, even those with whom you may disagree. The greatest among you will be your servant. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.